This is PRN, your as-needed dose of medical knowledge. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. And I'm Chandler Davis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice for the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Adward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. Hold up. This is your official warning that there is some explicit language in this podcast. I want to thank Janine, Abby, Hannah, Varun, Vaish, and Mita for helping to write these questions for a COVID-19 update from Dr. Calvin Sun. Hello. My name is Calvin Sun. I am a per diem emergentologist in the city of New York working at the majority of hospital systems where I work whenever and wherever I want uh, as an emergency physician, picking up shifts as like I'm a mercenary or a gun for hire. And I've been working the last three weeks in about 23 shifts. Over the course of 25, 27 days, I've lost count in over a dozen emergency rooms. And uh, ever since the COVID-19 pandemic has started, so I've seen varying progression of the worsening of this pandemic as an effect on us in the emergency rooms and outside on society. That's the big point that I wanted to hit on. You really have gotten to see a variety of hospitals, so you get a very good overview of different presentations. I was wondering if you could give us some information on demographics or presentations that you weren't expecting to see in patients. We don't know enough about this virus, so we don't know if it's the virus or confounding factors or is it because of something genetic or is it something else. It's not like just because COVID-19 started that other diseases don't happen, like bacterial pneumonias and heart attacks and strokes. We still have to be on the lookout for those things. You know, rheumatological, endocrine, emergencies, like as an emergency physician, we have to think of everything. So I'm not saying this is a virus, but a lot of studies and, and weird presentations have been happening that suggest that it could be related to COVID-19 that we haven't expected before. At first, it was diarrhea and abdominal pain as the only symptoms. We read about those. Some rule out appendicitis as a symptom. Um, the only thing finding was positive for COVID-19 with no other comorbidities. And then we're now seeing hypercoagulable states such as pulmonary embolisms and DVTs and uh, strokes, uh, thromboembolic stroke in the carotid artery in a young 33-year-old woman. The only thing she had there was a higher BMI as the only medical history. Another thing that I've seen some correlations is that, you know, younger people who tend to have higher BMIs or larger body habitus uh, have higher mortalities. And otherwise, mild courses are in younger patients with no medical history and uh, otherwise, you know, have normal to low BMI. That's an anecdotal observation and not necessarily something that's been validated by data. So take that with a grain of salt. For listeners, I want you guys to know that we are recording currently on April 4th, 2020. So things are obviously changing. And so I'm also interested, you know, you're not allowed to have family members come in and be with patients that are on ventilators. Can you speak to any of that experience with a patient not having family around? It's difficult because I always let the family be at the bedside and patients end life because it's the humane thing to do, but also in the interest of public health safety, I don't want those family members then to become patients the week after and then repeat the cycle. This time they're on their deathbeds and I've been invite more family members in and therefore creating a domino effect. So what do you do, right? There's no right or wrong in terms of what your risk tolerance is. And, you know, some family members do not care. They want to take that risk because it's more important to be there than the life uh, for their loved ones. And others don't want to be the next casualty 
in this pandemic and spread it to other family members that they love. Maybe it's the only person that they have in their lives. So it doesn't matter who they spread it to. And maybe they're part of a larger family. They don't want to become a, an extra uh, person that dies in their you know family tree. And it's different. It really depends. Um, it's just heartbreaking where now we have to resort to FaceTime to have family members speak to their loved ones at the end of life, which has happened yesterday a couple of times. Uh, I have family members who actually prefer to go home and not pick up a dead body of their loved ones because they don't want to come to the emergency room and get sick, which is totally understandable, but they feel guilty about it, and I have to reassure them that they're not the only ones. In fact, a majority of family members don't even come to the emergency room uh, and would prefer to be informed of a family death over the phone. I usually call them to come in person. I tell them in person, but this time things are different. A lot of things are different. I, w- I would like to know some about what your routine is that remind me of things that are changing uh, for you guys as well. What is a general routine like for physicians now pre and post shifts? People are talking about self-quarantining, away from their families. Every um, physician is going to have a different style, so I can't speak on behalf of them. It really depends on where you're practicing, what the hospital policies are. You know, I, I'm, I'm a per diem physician, which is you know, no one really does that. I, I only know one other person in the city that I've met in my two years of doing this that does the same thing, and she's a mother. So she has like, kids to take care of, so she, she chooses to be per diem because of that. Um, I don't. I'm just per diem. My choice, I'm making a living off of it. So my own practice style is going to be extremely, you know, different from someone who might be full-time. And so what are some precautions that you guys have to take? Because I've seen your videos on your Instagram of you putting on your PPE and stuff. Uh, I, you know, bring my stuff and I change in the hospital and I do everything there and I take off everything at the hospital. And when I go home, I, you know, put all my clothes in the laundry and then run in on a cycle and I take a shower. It's been my new routine. And what are some, I guess, of the biggest restrictions for you to be able to practice the way that you want? I know this is a very broad question. It's just that there are certain restrictions on you know, medical ethical dilemmas that prevent us from making a very clear choice that seem very obvious, right? You know, patients that may do worse by staying in the hospital because of a higher viral load exposure uh, and may be better at home, even though home may not have the oxygen support that they need. And, you know, restrictions on even touching our patients and increased risk of getting the virus if you listen to their lungs and get super close if you don't need to, right? If it doesn't change management, if they look great, feel great, and, you know, they have the virus, there's nothing in the hospital we can do for them. They can't already do at home. So increasing discharges may be uncomfortable for a lot of physicians who practice that way. It really depends on the doctor who, you know, have a certain set of experiences that may not have prepared them for a higher volume of that we're experiencing right now or, you know, may not deal with such things as rationing care. Uh, I'm trained in mass casualty and disaster medicine, uh, on the side, and I've had that experience of rationing care before internationally, and so my risk tolerance is different from other physicians. So for me, my practice changes aren't haven't been as severe as others, um, but I can't speak on behalf of them. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting perspective. Um, so you're talking about kind of in a way everyone's handling things differently. Are the hospitals that you're working at do they have any sort of mental health campaigns or, you know, how are people coping? Everyone has different methods of coping. I think some people, you know, have their loved ones that they go back home some too, and some people can't go back home to their loved ones because they've been quarantined by their 
partners because they don't want to spread it through their children or them themselves, so they're alone. And there are certain hotlines that have been set up for physicians to use, but you know how are you going to implement that? Implement that in a culture that's still to what is suffering from you know a, the double the national suicide rate, where taking help was considered taboo, uh, and it was a, was still a problem even before the pandemic. So I'm you know genuinely concerned about you know the PTSD that's going to happen after this pandemic is over, where people will quit or feel afraid of going back to the emergency room, feel that they were not adequately taken care of by their government and it was unjustified that they were being sent in without proper equipment and this distrust may pervade long past, you know, any of you know the initial after effects of this pandemic. As for myself, I mean I have a very good wellness system in place before this pandemic. I mean I run a travel blog and I travel every two or three weeks internationally since day one of medical school, and I never stopped. And I was continuing that really up until the day I started fighting uh, on the front lines of the pandemic. I like, flew in on March 7th, leading a two-week trip to Angola, uh, um, and then I started working on March 8th, 7 a.m. in the morning. So I, I have a very good support net- network. I have friends and family who have donated you know, personal protective equipment, and I'm per diem, so I choose my own schedule. Every shift I go into is because of some kind of autonomy that – that I created for myself that I'm going in because I want to, not because a schedule has forced me to go into, you know, before I can fully recharge. So I can work as much as I want. I can, you know, call out a shift early if I don't feel like working. People are just grateful that I'm there to fill in hold because, of, you know, the doctors are getting sick. So, you know, for my mental health, it's, you know, I, it's, I think I'm in a better position than, you know, most of my colleagues. I've heard that, some of the physicians' pays have been cut or they're asking for people to come and volunteer. Can you speak to whether or not that's true? And if it is true, is that true for other medical personnel and hospital administrators as well? I don't know. I actually don't know enough. I just found that out yesterday when a surgeon said he's a volunteer. He even wrote volunteer on his thing. And I was told that some of them are working for free because they want to help. And, you know, it's, you know, a lot of them are not doing anything because a lot of elective surgeries have been canceled and they're being they're paid for, you know, doing those surgeries. Uh, so rather than sit around and feeling useless when they can actually contribute to flattening the curve or, get, you know, fighting by this pandemic, every little bit counts. It gets them to a point where we can restart those elective surgeries again and get them, you know, the living that they need to continue putting food on the table. And, you know, it's, I can't think on behalf of it that's actually true for everyone, but that's just one guy. Uh, because, he's, you know, he's, some people are asking for hazard pay to go in, and that's understandable, too, because you're putting yourself in harm's way, and we don't even have enough PPE, so that everything you do is a risk. Do you feel like those people that are coming from other departments other than the ER are prepared to be in an ER setting? No, they're not, but we do appreciate their help, and we train them fast, and, you know, they may make fun of us for being ER all the time. It's kind of nice to have finally have them respect you know, what we do and you realize that emergency rooms is, is or being an emergentologist isn't about being superficial and deciding where they go, but it's also handling the volume of patients and coming in and making quick medical decisions and developing a just thought where your first five minutes is use the correct decision. That's an art. Yeah, that's interesting. I think people definitely have stigma against like other career choices in medicine, they definitely think of certain groups 
and one perspective, giving perspective is interesting on that. So I kind of want to move on to the outside world. How have state and federal government as well as communities provided support for you guys during this time? I don't really know. I'm a per diem doctor, so I only support myself. Um, what I like probably can say what it feels like is like we're in this burning building, trapped inside, trying to get as many healthy people out as soon as possible before the building collapses on us. Uh, and we're also, by the way, naked and not being supported. And we're trying to get our own equipment that's in the order, going off by donations by the public. Uh, I guess state government, it's kind of nice to hear in the news what they're saying on how dire the situation is actually finally matches what's going on uh, in on the trenches. So we're finally, like, meeting, you know, on the same page there in terms of communication of the reality on the ground. But, uh, I mean, it's correct about the ventilators and trying to get us more ventilators. But, you know, the, the New York State Department of Health on their public website, you just go there right now. You can, you can go there since November 2007 when they first published it. They, they estimate that we need 90,000 ventilators in the state of New York for a pandemic uh, on the level of 1918, a six-week period. 90,000 in that same paper on page 18 says that we only have 10,000 ventilators, including the ones in stockpile, which will take time to get out and transport to wherever hospitals are near that needs them, New York State. So that's ours, right? So that means there's 80,000 ventilators that are missing. So there might be a point where we have to ration them. So... Uh, and there's a whole, like, list of guidelines of how the, the thinking and the ethical dilemmas of, you know, why we can't do it without lottery or, you know, what, why we can't do, you know, um, certain exclusion criteria is, uh, or, you know, jobs or health health care workers. We can't do any of that because it's not fair. We're very un-American. We're very un-New York. So uh, that's very helpful to us that that was a public document and now we're all you know, being told to, to, to read it. You know, I, I read it, like, even before the pandemic, I knew about it. But a lot of my colleagues don't. So that was already in place. Now, with, there was the efforts of trying to get us the personal protective equipment and getting us all this stuff. It's like that burning building, though. We're still in this burning building there. The, I guess the fire trucks are coming. We kind of hear the distance, uh, the, the sirens in the distance. But we don't see anything yet. We don't see the hoses being taken out. We don't see the water, you know, you know, putting on the, out the flames, it's not quite there yet. So I will going to have to need more time before I actually see any fruits from their labor. We talked about a little bit about, you said that media is starting to get up to date with where you guys are. Do you feel like media coverage of the situation in New York has been accurate? The media is very doom and gloom. Sometimes they overdo it and other things. But right now, my emergency room experiences have been pretty dire, like, holy shit, really bad. And I've been having holy shit shit before. I mean, that's my job to put out fires and emergency rooms that are understaffed and overwhelmed. Uh, but that happens once in a while. And I'm very good at, you know, my threshold's very high before I crack. But it's been every day in every emergency room. It's just happening just more frequently. Right. I've had shifts like this before, but I never had it every single day in different emergency rooms. So it's just the pace of it, it can overwhelm. If it's someone like me doing mass casualty and disaster medicine outside of my usual day job, then how is it for someone who has a certain practice style for the last 10, 15 years, treating one patient at a time in emergency rooms, which is the way it should be done, doing everything for everyone. But in this setting, in this uh, pandemic, we can't afford that luxury anymore. We don't have the time. We don't have the resources. So now it's about 
greatest doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And a lot of doctors in, the, in this country haven't had that experience before. So I, I live in Blacksburg, Virginia, not an area that has been very impacted yet. Is there anything you feel like communities that haven't been impacted yet can do to not be in this burning fire that you're talking about? Yes. Hashtag stay the fuck home. <laughs> That's it. I mean, what can I do? What, what, what makes a difference? Stay the fuck home. The moment you <laughs> step out of that doorway, you're going to inhale somebody that had sneezed in that doorway that caught COVID-19 to touch a door handle that had COVID-19 that somebody else had touched like two hours before what? You're going to like just, you know that somebody's going to be there before? No, you, you won't know. And then you're going to touch your face and you give it to other people and give everyone in the grocery store. Everyone else is going to get it and more people are going to come to my emergency room. And then well, you're going to get us sick because we're just, oh, you're just overwhelming us with increased exposure that needs to happen. And then we get sick and then we're, we, we are out. And then when the time you're trying to get sick, who's going to be around to take care of you? So be selfish yeah. and stay the fuck home. I mean, I think we can't say it enough. So it's always nice to hear that that's what your recommendation is as well. Up until the vaccine so, comes. Yeah. Uh, do you, what, yeah, the, which speaking of innovations, you know, do you feel like there are any really big medical lessons or innovations that we're going to see coming out of this at the end? I mean, I hope that funding for vaccines for preventive care medicine or like pandemic response teams uh, remains. Uh, I think just general overall like institutional changes I think are required. Medical from innovations like maybe it's time to figure out how to engineer ventilators that can ventilate multiple patients without hurting any of them. Just you know find a way around the physics to you know start from scratch and build something bottom up. Uh, design ERs with negative pressure rooms. Put more money and funding into personal protective equipment. That's actually, you know, a standard of care. Right? There's a lot of things that can be said. Let's just change everything. We need a paradigm shift. And I can go on for hours and hours about what needs to change medically or structurally or institutionally to, you know, to make sure this doesn't happen again. Because I'm worried, if it's too soon to say, that COVID-19 is just a practice run for another pandemic. That for a virus that's just as contagious but as deadly as Ebola. So definitely something that we need to be reflecting on and looking on. And What are your thoughts on graduating fourth-year medical students early to join as volunteer medical personnel? I mean, it's their personal decision if they feel it's the right thing to do or wrong. Like, I mean, you know what I did in my fourth-year medical school? I, I traveled the world, and I didn't do anything medical. And I got all my requirements done early, uh, came back from match day, and I traveled again came back from graduation, gave my graduation speech, traveled again. So you can't travel anymore. If I were in that position during the pandemic, I, I think traveling is a very rude thing to do in this day and age. So are you going to sit around and take care of yourself and recharge before you start in July? Then fine. Then you need that. Take that time to yourself. No one's going to judge you, you know, other than yourself. Uh, if you feel that your time is better off just starting early and making that uh, the beginning of your you know, career, and you want to start with that, then that's your story. I mean, it's not up to me to write that story for you. Only you can decide how, how you want to start your residency training. Do you think that it's some, – some people have mentioned that it's maybe dangerous or harder than for physicians that are practicing, that have been practicing for a while, to teach um, basically interns. Do you have any thoughts on that? There's nothing that changes from – the day you graduate to medical school, then the first day you become a resident, that day is going to come regardless. 
all of a sudden you are licensed and you can prescribe medication. But, you know, what, the things that you learn as a first-day resident is not like a dramatic overnight change where you're suddenly confident you can handle it. It's a very gradual progression, right? And some people learn better by jumping into the deep end, right? So if you jump in the deep end, maybe it's safer for you to do that. And if you're not constantly jumping in the deep end and learning, maybe it's safer for you to gradually progress to that point. And you have to think that fighting COVID-19 isn't just throwing yourself into a burning building. There are other aspects of COVID-19 care that we need help on, right? You don't necessarily have to expose yourself to the virus head on. I don't expect medical students, fourth-year medical students, to graduate early and be intubating the next day, right? We're going to have to teach you how to intubate quickly to do RSI or DSI to, you know, intubate patients, you know, on a back-to-back basis. You know how I learned to do it? First year, intern year, I was doing it back-to-back-to-back. That's how I learned how to intubate, crash intubation. And it was very dangerous because those patients may have had, you know, may have became short of breath because of meningitis, sepsis from that. So I was accustomed signing up going in as a first-year resident the day after I graduated as a fourth-year medical student to expose myself by jumping in the deep end. But does not necessarily have to require that? No, not necessarily. That's me. But for somebody else, we may need those fourth-year medical students to be licensed early to take care of primary care patients, reopen the primary care clinics so those primary care patients that need med refills or work notes or just a physical checkup or they're worried well and they want to test, they don't have to all inundate the emergency room, getting themselves exposed to COVID-19 in the hot area where all the sick and dying patients are there to give them COVID-19 because right now everything's closed. Right? If all the primary care offices are closed and if all the elective surgeries are canceled, it gets everyone showing up. The only places that are open are emergency rooms. And that's not safe for those patients. Maybe the safer thing is that we open all those primary care offices, which are cleaner places than emergency rooms, and staff put iPads in there and have these 14 medical students do telehealth. That's not necessarily dangerous, is it? If they're staying at home, self-quarantining, they turn on their computer, go on Wi-Fi or a Zoom meeting or point of care, and they on telehealth and they see another patient and they are now licensed to prescribe medications to the pharmacy. They don't ever have to interact with a COVID-19 patient in person. I think that's perfectly safe. And if we can have five, six extra months on that and, and we have 14 medical students who are willing to fight that fight, then every little bit counts. So what would your message be to current medical students in light of what's happening, like ways to help, ways to stay up to date? Hashtag. Stay the fuck home. <laughs> That's it. Stay the, stay, hashtag stay the fuck home and prescribe medicine if you're licensed. You know, hashtag stay the fuck home and do telemedicine. Hashtag stay the fuck home and do nothing and stop getting infected because we need you when all of us fall as the second wave. Hashtag stay the fuck home and, you know, send an email to your senators or congressmen or your health representative and tell them to give us more personal protective equipment. Hashtag stay the fuck home and tell the hospitals they're about to work in to better protect you by the time you start as a resident, whether it's five months later or right now. Hashtag stay the fuck home and tell your medical school to better protect protect your the medical students who are third year rotation and still need that experience for their match. Right? Hashtag stay the fuck home and do whatever you can. Do nothing. Not up to me. It's about what kind of story you want to write. So I guess the one question that I have for you is because I know you because of your travel blog. Um, at the end of all this, where's the first place you want to travel to? I haven't really thought about traveling in the last month, which is odd. 
uh, everything's suspended, so I don't really want to jump the gun or jinx myself. Uh, but I already have a trip planned on July 4th weekend. If things start to calm down by June, then that might, might be a possibility. Uh, I had to cancel only one trip, uh, which is, you know, all my colleagues in the travel industry, you know, comparatively, I was on the luckier side. But, you know, I don't really have trips planned too far ahead of time, more like sometimes I plan trips the day of. So if it inspires me, other than the one in July, then it might be three weeks from now in case, and like, let's say they had announced the vaccine next week and we all get it. Then I'll be, I'll be traveling the next day if I could, if everything opens up again. But it's going to be a while, right? Because, you know, China opened up their movie theaters. They said they beat the size and opened the movie theaters, but nobody showed up. So they had to close all the movie theaters because they were just wasting money or something like that. So they all closed again. So that says a lot about what human nature is going to be like when it's coming, when they open up things. It's going to be a slow surge rather than an overnight pent up demand flood. And no one knows what to trust anymore. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot. For sure. I mean, that's what I'm for. Glad I could help. Look up at Monsoon Diaries on Instagram for daily updates. And while you're at it, follow our new Instagram at PRNMedPodcast. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. I'm Chandler Davis. And this is PRN.